Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Leave a five-star review wherever you listen to the podcast at. Um, We really do appreciate each and every one of them. Um, The Twitter page is Ratchet Book Club. Uh, You could talk with us there about anything, any thoughts you have on the books. Um, And the email is wretchedandratchet at gmail.com. Yeah. With uh, no further ado, let's go ahead and get right into it. Um, Here's chapter 13. Oh, the last thing that happened in chapter 12 was that um, Milo... In the Phantom Toll Booth, of course. This isn't Old Thought Next Door or uh, <laughs> The Coldest Winter Ever. So if you're looking for those, sorry, you're in the wrong. You're in the wrong section, honey. Um, but in at the end of Chapter 12, um, Milo had went to see um, the soundkeeper who uh, was keeping all the sounds for herself. So there was absolutely silence in the Valley of Sound. At least it should have been the Valley of Sound, but it was a Valley of Silence because she was keeping all the... You you see how it works. Um, Milo went to see her, and in her chambers, you're able to talk, which I thought was really selfish. Like, you want to hear absolute silence, but in your chambers, you can talk, but they can't talk when they go back to their house. So what kind of joy is that? Like, that's messed up. So, anyways, Milo is trying to finagle a way to sneak a sound out of the soundkeeper's chambers uh, because then they can load it up into a weapon and blast her walls down and free all the sounds in the world. Milo's talking to the soundkeeper and trying to figure out, you know, uh, can I have this sound? Can I have that sound? And she says no. And then at the very end of the chapter, he's about to say something. Um, and he stops and you know that point in time where you have a word right on the tip of your tongue like right in between um saying it and 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 not saying it that's where he is they said it got no further than that for while he was about to say that he didn't think that it was quite fair he suddenly discovered the way it would, he would carry his little sound from the fortress. In the instant between saying the word and before it sailed off into the air, he had clamped his lips shut and the butt was trapped in his mouth, all made but not spoken. That's dope. With that, let's go ahead and get to chapter 13, Unfortunate Conclusions. With his mouth shut tight and his feet moving as fast as thoughts could take them, Milo ran all the way back to the car. There was great excitement when he arrived, as Tock raced happily down the road to greet him. The humbug personally accepted all congratulations from the crowd. Where is the sound? Somebody hastily scribbled on the blackboard, and they all waited anxiously for the reply. Milo caught his breath, picked up the chalk, and explained simply, It's on the tip of my tongue. Several people excitedly threw their hats in the air. Some shouted what would have been a loud hurrah and the rest pushed the heavy cannon into place. They aimed it directly at the thickest part of the fortress wall and packed it full of gunpowder. Milo stood on tiptoe, leaned over the cannon's mouth, and parted his lips. The small sound dropped silently to the bottom and everything was ready. In another moment, the fuse was lit and sputtering. I hope no one gets hurt, thought Milo, and before he had time to think again, An immense cloud of grand white smoke leaped from the gun and, 
Along with it, so softly it was barely heard, came the sound of... But... It flew towards the wall for several seconds in a high, lazy arc, and then struck ever so lightly just to the right of the big door. For an instant there was an ominous stillness, quieter and more silent than ever before, as if even the air was holding its breath. And then, almost immediately, there was a blasting, roaring, thundering smash, followed by a crushing, shattering, bursting crash as every stone in the fortress came toppling to the ground and the vaults burst open, spilling the sound of history into the wind. Every sound that had ever been uttered or made, from way back to where there were none, to way up to when there was too many, came hurtling out of the debris in a way that sounded as though everyone in the world was laughing, whistling, shouting, crying, singing, whispering, humming, screaming, coughing, and sneezing all at the same time. There were bits of old speeches floating about, as well as recited lessons, gunshots from all wars, babies' cries, auto horns, waterfalls, electric fans, galloping horses, and a great deal of everything else. For a while, there was total and deafening confusion, and then, almost as quickly as they had come, all the old sounds disappeared over the hill in search of their new freedom, and things were normal again. The people quickly went about their busy, talkative business, and, as the smoke and dust cleared, only Milo, Tak, and the humbug noticed the soundkeeper sitting disconsolately on a pile of rubble. I'm terribly sorry, said Milo sympathetically as the three of them went to console her. But we had to do it, added Tak, sniffing around the ruins. What a terrible mess, observed the humbug, with his knack for saying exactly the wrong thing. The soundkeeper looked around with an expression of unrelieved sadness on her unhappy face. It'll take years to collect all those sounds again, she sobbed, and even longer to put them back in proper order. But it's all my fault, for you can't improve sound by having only silence. The problem is to use each at the proper time. As she spoke, the familiar and unmistakable squinch-squatch, squinch-squanch of the den's heavy footsteps could be heard, plodding over the hill, and when he finally appeared, he was dragging an incredibly large sack behind him. Can anyone use these sounds? He puffed, mopping his forehead. They all came over the hill at once, and none of them were awful enough for me. The soundkeeper peered into the sack, and there were all the sounds which had burst from the vaults. How nice of you to return them, she cried happily. You and the doctor must come by for an evening of beautiful music when my fortress is repaired. The thought of it so horrified the den that he excused himself immediately and dashed off down the road in a great panic. I hope I haven't offended him, she said with some concern. He only likes unpleasant sounds, volunteered Tuck. Ah, yes, she sighed. I keep forgetting that many people do. But I suppose they are necessary, for you'd never really know how pleasant one was unless you knew how unpleasant it wasn't. She paused for a moment, and then continued. If only rhyme and reason were here, I'm sure things would improve. That's why we're going to rescue them, said Milo proudly. What a long, hard journey that'll be. You'll need some nourishment, she cried, handing Milo a small brown package, neatly wrapped and tied with string. 
Now remember, they're not for eating, but for listening. Because you'll often be hungry for sounds as well as food. Here are street noises at night, train whistles a long way off, dry leaves burning, busy department stores, crunching toasts, creaking bed springs, and of course, all kinds of laughter. There's a little of each, and in far off lonely places, I think you'll be glad to have them. I'm sure we will, said Milo gratefully. Just take this road to the sea and turn left, she told them. You'll soon be in Digitopolis. And almost before she had finished, they had said goodbye and left the valley behind them. The shoreline was peaceful and flat, and the calm sea bumped it playfully along the sandy beach. In the distance, a beautiful island covered with palm trees and flowers beckoned invitingly from the sparkling water. Nothing can possibly go wrong now cried the humbug happily, and as soon as he said it, he leaped from the car, as if stuck by a pin, and sailed all the way to the little island. And we'll have plenty of time, answered Tok, who hadn't noticed that the bug was missing, and he, too, suddenly leaped into the air and disappeared. It certainly couldn't be a nicer day, agreed Milo, who was too busy looking at the road to see that the others had gone, and in a split second, he was gone also. He landed next to Tok and the terrified humbug on the tiny island, which now looked completely different. Instead of palms and flowers, there were only rocks and the twisted stumps of long dead trees. It certainly didn't seem like the same place they had seen from the road. Pardon me, said Milo to the first man who happened by. Can you tell me where I am? Pardon me, replied the man. Can you tell me who I am? The man was dressed in a shaggy tweed jacket and knickers with long woolen stockings and a cap that had a peak both front and back, and he seemed to be as confused as he could be. You must know who you are, said Milo impatiently. You must know where you are, he replied with equal annoyance. Oh dear, this is going to be difficult, Milo whispered to Tok. I wonder if we can help him. They conferred for a few minutes, and finally the bug looked up and said, Can you describe yourself? Yes, indeed, the man replied happily. I'm as tall as can be. And he grew straight up until all that could be seen of him was his shoes and stockings. And I'm as short as can be. And he shrank down to the size of a pebble. I'm as generous can be, he said, handing each of them a large red apple. And I'm as selfish as can be, he snarled, grabbing him back again. I'm as strong as can be, he roared, lifting an enormous boulder over his head. And I'm as weak as can be, he gasped, staggering under the weight of his hat. I'm as smart as can be, he remarked in twelve different languages. And I'm as stupid as can be, he admitted, putting both feet in one shoe. I'm as graceful as can be, he hummed, balancing on one toe. And I'm as clumsy as can be, he cried, sticking his thumb in his eye. I'm as fast as can be, he announced, running around the island twice in no time at all. And I'm as slow as can be, he complained, waving goodbye to a snail. Is that any help to you? Once again, they conferred in busy whispers until all three agreed. It's really very simple said the humbug, twirling his cane. If everything you say is true, added Tok, 
Then, without a shadow of a doubt, Milo concluded brightly, you must be, can be. Of course, yes, why didn't I think of that? The man shouted. I'm as happy as can be. Then he quickly sat down, put his head in his hands and sighed. But I'm also as sad as can be. Now will you tell us where we are? Asked Tak as he looked around the desolate island. To be sure, said Canby. You're on the island of conclusions. Make yourself at home. You're apt to be here for some time. But how do we get here? Asked Milo, who was still a bit puzzled at being there at all. You jumped, of course, explained Canby. That's the way most people get here. It's really quite simple. Every time you decide something without having a good reason, you jump to conclusions, whether you like it or not. It's such an easy trip to make that I've been here hundreds of times. But this is such an unpleasant looking place, Milo remarked. Yes, that's true, admitted Canby. It does look much better from a distance. As he spoke, at least eight or nine more people sailed onto the island from every direction possible. Well, I'm going to jump right back, announced the humbug, who took two or three practice bends, leaped as far as he could, and landed in a heap two feet away. That won't do at all, scolded Canby, helping him to his feet. You can never jump away from conclusions. Getting back is not so easy, and that's why we're so terribly crowded here. That was certainly the truth, for all along the bleak shore and clustered on the rocks as far as anyone could see was enormous crowds of people, all sadly looking out to sea. Isn't there even a boat? asked Milo, anxious to get on with his trip. Oh no, replied Canby, shaking his head. The only way back is to swim, and that is a very long and very hard way. I don't like to get wet moaned the unhappy bug, and he shuddered at the thought. Neither do they, said Canby sadly. That's what keeps them here. But I wouldn't worry too much about it, for you could swim all day in the sea of knowledge and still come out completely dry. Most people do. But you must excuse me now. I have to greet the new arrivals. As you know, I'm as friendly as can be. Over the humbug's strenuous objections, Milo and Tuck decided to swim and, protesting loudly, the bug was dragged along with them towards the sea. Canby hurried off to answer more questions, and the last thing he was heard to say was, Pardon me, can you tell me who I am? They swam and swam and swam for what seemed like hours, and only Tuck's firm encouragement kept Milo struggling through the icy water. At last they reached the shore, thoroughly exhausted, and, except for the bug, completely soaked. That wasn't bad at all, the humbug said, straightening his tie and brushing himself off. I must visit there again. I'm sure you will, gasped Milo, but from now on, I'm going to have a very good reason before I make my mind up about anything. You can lose too much time jumping to conclusions. The car was just where they left it. And in a moment, they were on their way again as the road turned away from the sea and began its long climb into the mountains. The warm sun and billowy breezes dried them as they went. I hope we reach Digitopolis soon, said Milo, thinking of the breakfast they hadn't eaten. I wonder how far it is. Chapter 14 
the dodecahedron leads the way. Up ahead, the road divided into three, and, as if in reply to Milo's question, an enormous road sign, pointing in all three directions, stated clearly, Digitopolis, five miles, 16,000 rods, 8,800 yards, 26,400 feet, 316,800 inches, 633,600 half inches, and then some. Let's travel by miles, advised the humbug. It's shorter. Let's travel by half inches, suggested Milo. It's quicker. But which road should we take, asked Tok. It must make a difference. As they argued, a most peculiar-looking little fellow stepped nimbly from behind the sign and approached them, talking all the while. Yes, indeed, indeed it does. Certainly my yes, yes, it does make a difference, undoubtedly. He was constructed, for that's really the only way to describe him, of a large assortment of lines and angles connected together into one solid, many-sided shape, somewhat like a cube that had all of its corners cut off and then had all of its corners cut off again. Each of the edges were neatly labeled with a small letter, and each of the angles with a large one. He wore a handsome beret on top, and peering intently from one of its several surfaces was a very serious face. When he reached the car, the figure doffed his cap and recited in a loud, clear voice, My angles are many. My sides are not few. I am the dodecahedron. Who are you? What is a dodecahedron? Decahedron, inquired Milo, who was barely able to pronounce a strange word. See for yourself, he said, turning around slowly. A dodecahedron is a mathematical shape with twelve faces. Just as he said it, eleven other faces appeared, one on each surface, and each one wore a different expression. I usually use one at a time, he confided, as all but the smiling one disappeared again. It saves wear and tear. What are you called? Milo, said Milo. That is an odd name, he said, changing his smiling face for a frowning one. And you only have one face. Is that bad? asked Milo, making sure it was still there. You'll soon wear it out using it for everything, replied the dodecahedron. Now I have one for smiling, one for laughing, one for crying, one for frowning, one for thinking, one for pouting, and six more besides. Is everybody with one face called a Milo? Oh no, Milo replied. Some are called Henry or George or Robert or Jill or lots of other things. How terribly confusing, he cried. Everything here is called exactly what it is. The triangles are called triangles. The circles are called circles. And even the same numbers have the same name. Why, can you imagine what would happen if we named all the twos Henry or George or Robert or Jill or lots of other things? You'd have to say Robert plus Jill equals four. And if the four's name was Anna, things would be hopeless. I never thought of it that way, Milo admitted. Then I suggest you begin at once, admonished the dodecahedron from his admonishing face. For here in Digitopolis, everything is quite precise then perhaps you can help us decide which road to take, said Milo. By all means, he replied happily. There's nothing to it. 
If a small car carrying three people at 30 miles an hour for 10 minutes along a road five miles long at 11.35 in the morning starts at the same time as three people who have been traveling in a little automobile at 20 miles an hour for 15 minutes on another road exactly twice as long as one half of the distance of the other, while a dog, a bug, and a boy travel an equal distance in the same time or the same distance in the equal time along a third road in mid-October, then which one arrives first and which is the best way to go? 17, shouted the humbug, scribbling furiously on a piece of paper. Well, I'm not sure, but Milo stammered after several minutes of frantic figuring. You'll have to do better than that, scolded the dodecahedron. Or you'll never know how far you've gone, or whether or not you've ever gotten there. I'm not very good at problems, admitted Milo. What a shame, sighed the dodecahedron. They're so very useful. Why, did you know that if a beaver two feet long with a tail a foot and a half long could build a dam 12 feet high and 6 feet wide in two days, all you would need to build Boulder Dam is a beaver 68 feet long with a 51 foot tail? Where would you find a beaver that big? grumbled the humbug as his pencil point snapped. I'm sure I don't know, he replied, but if you did, you'd certainly know what to do with them. That's absurd, objected Milo, whose head was spinning from all the numbers and questions. That may be true, he acknowledged, but it's completely accurate, and as long as the answer's right, who cares if the question is wrong? If you want sense, you'll have to make it yourself. All three roads arrived at the same place at the same time, interrupted Tak, who had been patiently doing the first problem. Correct, shouted the dodecahedron, and I'll take you there myself. Now you can see how important problems are. If you hadn't done this one properly, you might have gone the wrong way. I, I can't see where I made my mistake, said the humbug, frantically rechecking his figures. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I'm laughing because the number he came up with was 17. <laughs> I'm sorry. <clears throat> but if all the roads arrive at the same place at the same time, then aren't they all the right way? asked Milo. Certainly not he shouted, glaring from his most upset face. They're all the wrong way. Just because you have a choice, it doesn't mean that any of them has to be right. He walked to the sign and quickly spun it around three times. As he did, the three roads vanished and a new one suddenly appeared, heading in the direction that the sign now pointed. Is every road five miles from Digitopolis? asked Milo. I'm afraid it has to be, the dodecahedron replied, leaping onto the back of the car. It's the only sign we've got. The new road was quite bumpy and full of stones, and each time they hit one, the dodecahedron bounced into the air and landed on one of his faces, with a sulk or a smile or a laugh or a frown, depending upon which one it was. We'll soon be there, he announced happily, after one of his short flights. Welcome to the land of numbers. It doesn't look very inviting, the bug remarked, for... As they climbed higher and higher, not a tree or a blade of grass could be seen anywhere. Only the rocks remain. Is this the place where numbers are made? asked Milo as the car lurched again. And this time the dodecahedron sailed off down the mountainside, head over hills and grunt over grimace, until he landed sad side up at what looked like the entrance to a cave. They're not made, he replied as if nothing had happened. You have to dig for them. Don't you know anything at all about numbers? Well, I don't think they're very important, snapped Milo, too embarrassed to admit the truth. Not important, roared the dodecahedron, turning red with fury. 
Could you have tea for two without the two? Or three blind mice without the three? Would there be four corners of the earth if there weren't a four? And how would you sell the seven seeds without a seven? All I meant was, began Milo, but the dodecahedron, overcome with emotions and shouting furiously, carried right on. If you had high hopes, how would you know how high they were? And did you know the narrow escapes come in all different widths? Would you travel the whole wide world without ever knowing how wide it was? And how could you do anything at long last, he concluded, waving his arms over his head, without knowing how long the last was? Why, numbers are the most beautiful and valuable things in the world. Just follow me and I'll show you. He turned on his heel and stalked off into the cave. Come along, come along, he shouted from the dark hole. I can't wait for you all day. And in a moment, they followed him into the mountain. It took several minutes for their eyes to become accustomed to the dim light. And during that time, strange scratching, scraping, tapping, scuffling noise could be heard all around them. Put these on, instructed the dodecahedron, handing each of them a helmet with a flashlight attached to the top. Where are we going? whispered Milo, for it seemed like the kind of place in which you whispered. We're here, he replied with a sweeping gesture. This is the numbers mine. Milo squinted into the darkness and saw for the first time that they had entered a vast cavern lit only by a soft, eerie glow from the great stalactites which hung ominously from the ceiling. Passages and corridors honeycombed the walls and wound their way from floor to ceiling, up and down the sides of the cave. And, everywhere he looked, Milo saw little men no bigger than himself, busy digging and chopping, shoveling and scraping, pulling and tugging carts full of stone from one place to another. Right this way, instructed Dodecahedron, and watch where you step. As he spoke, his voice echoed and re-echoed and re-echoed again, mixing his sound with the buzz of activity all around them. Tok trotted along next to Milo, and the humbug, stepping daintily, followed behind. Whose mine is it? asked Milo, stepping around two of the loaded wagons. By the 4,827,659 hairs on my head, it's mine, of course, bellowed a voice from across the cavern. And striding towards them came a figure who could only have been the math magician. He was dressed in a long flowing robe covered entirely with complex mathematical equations and a tall pointed cap that made him look very wise. In his left hand he carried a long staff with a pencil point at one end and a large rubber eraser at the other. It's a lovely mine, apologized the humbug who was always intimidated by loud noises. The biggest number mine in the kingdom, said the math magician proudly. Are there any precious stones in it? asked Milo excitedly. Precious stones, he roared, even louder than before, and then he leaned over towards Milo and whispered softly, By the 8,247,312 threads in my robe, I'll say they are. Look here. He reached into one of the carts and pulled out a small object, which he polished vigorously on his robe. When he held it up to the light, it sparkled brightly. But that's a five objected Milo, for that's certainly what it was. Exactly, agreed the mathematician, as valuable a jewel as you'll find anywhere. Look at some of the others. He scooped up a great handful of stones and poured them into Milo's arms. They included all the numbers from one to nine, and even an assortment of zeros. We dig them and polish them right here, volunteered the dodecahedron, pointing to a group of workers busily employed at the buffing wheels. 
And then we send them all over the world. Marvelous, aren't they? They are exceptional, said Tak, who had a special fondness for numbers. So that's where they come from, said Milo, looking in awe at the glittering collection of numbers. He returned them to the dodecahedron as carefully as possible, but as he did, one dropped to the floor with a smash and broke in two. The humbug winced and Milo looked terribly concerned. Oh, don't worry about that, said the math magician as he scooped up the pieces. We use the broken ones for fractions. Haven't you any diamonds or emeralds or rubies? asked the bug irritably, for he was quite disappointed in what he'd seen so far. Yes, indeed, the math magician replied, leading them to the rear of the cave. Right this way. There, piled into enormous mounds that reached almost to the ceiling, were not only diamonds and emeralds and rubies, but also sapphires, amethysts, topazes, moonstones, and garnets. It was the most amazing mass of wealth that any of them had ever seen. They're such a terrible nuisance, sighed the math magician, and no one can think of what to do with them. So we keep digging them up and throwing them out. Now, taking a silver whistle from his pocket and blowing it loudly, let's have some lunch. And for the first time in his life, the astonished bug couldn't think of a thing to say. Chapter 15. This Way to Infinity into the cavern rushed eight of the strongest miners carrying an immense cauldron which bubbled and sizzled and sent great clouds of savory steam spiraling towards the ceiling. A sweet yet pungent aroma hung in the air and drifted easily from one anxious nose to the other, stopping only long enough to make several mouths water and a few stomachs growl. Milo, Tok, and the humbug watched eagerly as the rest of the workers put down their tools and gathered around the big pot to help themselves. Perhaps you'd care for something to eat, said the math magician, offering each of them a heaping bowlful. Yes, sir, said Milo, who was beside himself with hunger. Thank you, added Tok. The humbug made no reply, for he was already too busy eating, and in a moment the three of them had finished absolutely everything they had been given. Please, have another portion, said the math magician, filling their bowls once more. And as quickly as they finished the first bowl, the second was empty too. Don't stop now, he insisted, serving them again, and again, and again, and again, and again. How very strange, thought Milo as he finished his seventh helping. Each one I eat makes me a little hungrier than the one before. Do have some more, suggested the math magician, and they continued to eat just as fast as he filled the plates. After Milo had eaten nine portions, Tock 11, and Humbug, without stopping to look up, 23. The math magician blew his whistle for the second time, and immediately the pot was removed, and the miners went to work. <laughs> gasped the bug, suddenly realizing that he was 23 times hungrier than when he started. I think I'm starving. Me too, complained Milo, whose stomach felt as empty as he could ever remember. And I ate so much. Yes, it was delicious, wasn't it? Agreed the pleased dodecahedron, wiping the gravy from several of his mouths. It's the specialty of the kingdom. Subtraction stew. I have more of an appetite than when I began, said Tok, leaning weakly against one of the larger rocks. Certainly, replied the math magician. What did you expect? The more you eat, the hungrier you get. Everyone knows that. They do? asked Milo doubtfully. Then how do you ever get enough? Enough? 
he said impatiently. Here in Digitopolis, we have our meals when we're full and we eat until we're hungry. That way, when you don't have anything at all, you have more than enough. It's a very economical system. You must have been quite stuck to it eating so much. It's completely logical, explained the dodecahedron. The more you want, the less you get, and the less you get, the more you have. Simple arithmetic, that's all. Suppose you had something and added something to it. What would that make? More, said Milo quickly. Quite correct, he nodded. Now suppose you had something and added nothing to it. What would you have? The same, he answered again without much conviction. Splendid, cried the dodecahedron. And suppose you had something and added less than nothing to it. What would you have then? Famine! roared the anguished humbug, who had suddenly realized that was exactly what he had eaten 23 bowls of. It's not as bad as all that, said the dodecahedron from his most sympathetic face. In a few hours you'll be nice and full again, just in time for dinner. Oh dear, said Milo sadly and softly. I only eat when I'm hungry. What a curious idea, said the math magician, raising his staff over his head and scrubbing the rubber end back and forth several times on the ceiling. The next thing you'll have us believe is that you only sleep when you're tired. And by the time he finished the sentence, the cavern, the miners, and the dodecahedron had vanished, leaving just the four of them standing in the math magician's workshop. I often find, he casually explained to his day's visitors, that the best way to get from one place to another is to erase everything and begin again. Please make yourself at home. Do you always travel that way? asked Milo as he glanced curiously at the strange circular room whose 16 tiny arched windows corresponded exactly to the 16 points of the compass. Around the entire circumference were numbers from 0 to 360, marking the degrees of the circle, and on the floor, walls, tables, chairs, desks, cabinets, and ceiling were labels showing their heights, widths, depths, and distances to and from each other. To one side was a gigantic notepad set on the artist's easel, and from hooks and strings hung a collection of scales, rulers, measures, weights, tapes, and all sorts of other devices for measuring any number of things in every possible way. No, indeed, replied the math magician, and this time he raised the sharpened end of his staff, drew a thin straight line in the air, and walked gracefully across from one side of the room to the other. Most of the time I take the shortest distance between any two points, and of course, when I should be in several places at once, he remarked, writing seven times one equals seven carefully on a notepad. I simply multiply. Suddenly, there were seven math magicians standing side by side, and each of them looked exactly like the other. How did you do that? gasped Milo. There's nothing to it, they all said in chorus, if you have a magic staff. Then six of them canceled themselves out and simply disappeared. But it's only a big pencil, the humbug objected, tapping at it with his cane. True enough, agreed the math magician, but once you learn to use it, there's no end to what you can do. Can you make things disappear? asked Milo excitedly. Why, certainly, he said, striding over to the easel. Just step a little closer and watch carefully. After demonstrating that there was nothing up his sleeves, in his hat, or behind his back, he wrote quickly, 4 plus 9 minus 2 times 16 plus 1 divided by 3 times 6 minus 67 plus 8 times 2 minus 3 plus 26 minus 1 divided by 34 plus 3 divided by 7 plus 2 minus 5 equals. Then he looked up expectantly. 
17, shouted the bug, who always managed to be the first with the wrong answer. It all comes to zero, corrected Milo. Precisely, said the math magician, making a very theatrical bow. And the entire line of numbers vanished before their eyes. Now, is there anything else you'd like to see? Yes, please, said Milo. Can you show me the biggest number there is? I'd be delighted, he replied, opening one of the closet doors. We keep it right here. It took four miners just to dig it out. Inside was the biggest three Milo had ever seen. It was fully twice as high as the math magician. No, that's not what I mean, objected Milo. Can you show me the longest number there is? Surely, said the math magician, opening another door. Here it is. It took three cars to carry it here. Inside this closet was the longest eight imaginable. It was just about as wide as the three was high. No, 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 that's not what I meant either, said Milo, looking helplessly at Tuck. I think what you'd like to see, said the dog, scratching himself just under half past four, is the number of greatest possible magnitude. Well, why didn't you say so, said the math magician, who was busily measuring the edge of a raindrop. What's the greatest number you can think of? Nine trillion nine hundred nine nine billion nine hundred nine nine million nine hundred nine nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine, recited Milo breathlessly. Very good, said the math magician. Now add one to it. Now add one again, he repeated when Milo had added the previous one. Now add one again. 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 Now add, but when can I stop? pleaded Milo. Never, said the math magician with a little smile, for the number you want is always at least one more than the number you've got, and it's so large that if you started saying it yesterday, you wouldn't finish tomorrow. <laughs> Where could you ever find a number so big, scoffed the humbug. In the same place I have the smallest number there is, he answered helpfully. And you know what that is. Certainly, said the bug, suddenly remembering something to do at the other end of the room. One one millionth? asked Milo, trying to think of the smallest fraction possible. Almost, said the math magician. Now divide it in half. Now divide it in half again. 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 Now divide. Oh dear, shouted Milo, holding his hands to his ears. Doesn't that ever stop either? How can it? said the math magician, when you could always take half whatever you have left until it's so small that if you started to say it right now, you finish even before you began. Where could you keep something so tiny? Milo asked, trying very hard to imagine such a thing. The math magician stopped what he was doing and explained simply, why, in a box that's so small you can't see it. And that's kept in a drawer that's so small that you can't see it. In a dress that's so small you can't see it. In a house that's so small you can't see it. On a street that's so small you can't see it. In a city that's so small you can't see it. Which is part of a country that's so small you can't see it. In a world that's so small you can't see it. And then he sat down, fanned himself with a handkerchief, and continued. Then, of course, we keep the whole thing in another box that's so small you can't see it. And, if you follow me, I'll show you where to find it. They walked to one of the small windows, and there, tied to the sill, was one end of a line that stretched across the ground and into the distance until completely out of sight. 
Just follow that line forever, said the math magician. And when you reach the end, turn left. There you find the land of infinity, where the tallest, the shortest, the biggest, the smallest, and the most and least of everything are kept. I really don't have that much time, said Milo anxiously. Isn't there a quicker way? Well, you might try this flight of stairs, he suggested, opening another door and pointing up. It goes there, too. Milo bounded across the room and started up the stairs two at a time. Wait for me, please, he shouted to Tak and the humbug. I'll be gone just a few minutes. All right, so, again, Milo is now running off in search of infinity, I guess. And uh, we'll see what happens in the next chapter. Thank you all so much for checking me out. Leave a five-star review wherever you uh, listen to the podcast at. Um, and just, you know, be easy. 916-633-1537. Uh, wretched and ratchet at gmail.com. And Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Hit me up. Say hi. Follow us. Uh, we usually talk back. Um, but yeah, I want to thank each of y'all for checking us out and listening. I really do appreciate it. It means a lot to me. And we'll be back with the next couple chapters. Y'all be good. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by that kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. <laughs>